Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Howdy friends, Michael Kingswood again, and it's story time. Well, as advertised last week, uh, all done with the previous story, What Lurks Between, and going to move on, finally, to a longer, longer tale. Uh, as you recall, or maybe you don't, I uh, started off the uh, the podcast and uh, restarted the video channel by uh, doing my novella, uh, Veritas Morte, uh, which I had a professional read and spread it out over the course of, what, a couple months. Uh, well, I finally have another professional reading done of my novel, Glimmer of Ale, which is the first book in a series of science fiction well, not science fiction, uh, fantasy, sword, and sorcery type stories that I've been writing for several years now. The conceit for this one was, uh, I wrote it in November of 2011 for National Novel Writing Month, which, if you don't know what that is, is a uh, thing where people around the country and around the world uh, go and decide, oh, we're going to write a 50,000-word novel in one month, and just because it's cool. And you know they're, and they get online. You track progress with each other and trade um, status updates. And you have buddies get get involved and keep each other motivated. It's sort of a way that some people use to kickstart writing. Or if they've never written a th- book before and always wanted to, it's like ah, try this, do this challenge. There are some who uh, disparage it because oh, you can't write that fast. It won't be any good. Or and there are others who just who you know write so much that it's basically like oh fifty thousand words in a month yeah whatever I do that all the time. Um, I am not the first type. I don't believe that the speed of writing has any correlation at all with uh, quality of said writing. In fact, um, in some ways, I think writing slower and and going and endlessly tweaking and worrying about it and blah 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 actually can make it worse and uh yeah everybody has their own thought process about that anyway I went into that and I hadn't done the NaNoWriMo thing before and I had just finished my first novel and published my first novel um uh, a couple months earlier and was like ah that took me you know three or four months to write eh maybe I'll you know, try to do it faster. And I came up with, with the notion of, uh, hey, the, 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 the title, Glimmer Veil, just popped out of nowhere, just as a setting. Oh, isolated mountain place. Valley of the Mountains with a little village in it. And then I was like, aha, I know. Seven Samurai, but in Western medieval setting. Because if you, yeah, it's difficult to find a cooler tale than Seven Samurai or in the Western version, The Magnificent Seven, 
right? You got the, the Ronin who get hired to defend the village who are being attacked by brigands and they go, <coughs> excuse me, and have a recruit a bunch of help and go and they become heroes and I was like, ah, oh, we'll do that. And uh, my thing, so Glimmervale got got born and sure enough, it's about two guys who are get hired to protect the village from brigands. A little more to it than that. They got a backstory of some stuff they're running from and crank, cranked it out. I got the whole 50,000 words done in November. In uh, December, January, I added a bit more to flesh it out a little bit and get a good ending. And then went and you know, put it out there for the world to see back in you know, what, summer of 2012. The, the audiobook so is a long time coming. Um, it's just something I never got around to until just recently. Uh, it's read by a guy named Nathan Dabney, who I hooked up with. Uh, he's one of the guys who uh, works with uh, Jim Fear 138, who's uh, got his own little uh, audio production company. Uh, he's done a bunch of books for various people around on the webs. And um, yeah, I think it turned out pretty well. He's currently working on the book for number two, which is called Outdweller. And at present, there are five novels in the series and one short story. The book six I've been kind of delaying on because I've been focusing on other things. Uh, but, you know, I got it's not really any plan for the series, just kind of like going, but I have notions of things that I want to touch. There's no overarching end goal. It's just kind of like following these guys and their adventures in Glimmer Vale. And uh, <coughs> I rather like it, and it's been well received by the people who have actually found it and <laughs> read it. And uh, hey, so we're going to share it with you guys, hopefully it's to entice you to pick up copies and or at the very least, tell other people about it. So, that's about all I got about that. Like I said last week, um, in re there's 30 chapters in the book. In reading it, it seems like uh, Nathan averaged eh, 10 to 12 minutes per chapter. Um, so we'll probably do two chapters a week. Uh, that way, get it all done in hmm, just under four months. And... That gives me time to get other audiobooks produced and other stories written so I don't have to keep uh, uh, don't have to stress over what uh, to do on the podcast every week. It's kind of convenient for me, too. Anyway, I hope you like it. Um, without further ado, I'll turn you over to Nathan as he reads the story. Glimmer Vale. The Glimmer Vale Chronicles. Number one, by Michael Kingswood. Read by Nathan Dabney. A Dimension Bucket Media Production. Chapter One, Garrett's Gorge. Cold wind whipped past Julian, making his cloak furl out behind him. Biting back a curse, he clutched at the flapping cloth and pulled it back in tight around his body but not before the momentary exposure had done its damage. What small warmth he had been able to retain was gone, leaving him to shiver in his saddle. The male shirt he wore didn't help matters, but he had learned the hard way not to go without it. It was supposed to be getting on into spring. Down below, in the lowlands many miles behind him, farmers were tilling their fields in preparation for the first planting. 
Trees and bushes were beginning to show their first buds, and people could go about their business in less than three layers of clothing, but not here, among the peaks of the Saddleback Mountains. Here, winter still clung to the land like a young maiden to her first crush. Tell me again why we're taking this route? He muttered with annoyance. Julian's companion looked sidelong at him and rolled his eyes. Radric was a hand taller than Julian and thin as a stick, with shoulder-length black hair that was tied into a short ponytail at the nape of his neck. Like Julian, Radric wore a cowled brown cloak of thick wool over his mail and calf-high leather riding boots. Beyond that, their fashion sense deviated, for while Radric usually picked shirts and pants of blue and gray, Julian preferred green and browns. They went with his short brown hair and hazel eyes better. Or, at least, that's what the ladies told him. When they first met, Julian thought sure he could break Radric in half with one hand. He had quickly learned the folly of that. Radric was quick, and a lot stronger than he looked. And he could wield the saber that hung from his saddle horn with deadly efficiency. I don't feel like getting caught, do you? Radric said. Not many people come this way anymore since the southern passes became viable. Plus, it's faster. I'd almost rather take my chances down south, Julian replied. It had been a hard week since they departed Callis. The army did not generally chase deserters, but all the same, if a chance patrol happened upon them, they were done. So they took pains to remain out of sight, which meant they mostly traveled at night. That had been bad enough, but once they made it into the foothills of the mountains, past even the most distant picket lines, the journey had steadily gotten worse. At first Julian had thought riding in the day again would be easier, but as the terrain became more rugged their progress slowed, and the day's riding grew more exhausting. Then, the day before yesterday, they passed through the last of the trees and emerged onto the bare flank of the mountains, leaving them completely exposed to the elements. Fierce gusting winds and lowering temperatures conspired to create a thoroughly miserable day and a restless night. They finally got a bit of relief yesterday afternoon as they put the first few peaks behind them, and then again this morning when they entered Garrett's Gorge. But that was a respite only compared to the bitter cold of the mountain range's flanks, as the last wind gust revealed. At least they had a nice view. Julian had to concede that. About ten feet to his left, the road abruptly fell away. A sheer cliff, and another one a tenth of a mile away facing it, formed the walls of the gorge. At the bottom, a couple hundred feet down, the Cascade River flowed, a long series of rapids that only subsided in the foothills far to the west, where it merged with the River Lonele on its way to the Timor Sea. Between the gorge and all the mighty peaks around them, there was always another awe-inspiring sight here. But right then, Julian would trade it all for a nice fire and a warm mug of mulled wine. And a warmer maiden. Quit complaining, the other man said. We're almost to the falls. From there, it's just barely half a day to Lydleton. Julian only grunted in reply. They rode in silence for another hour. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, a low noise began to intrude on Julian's consciousness. At first, it was easy to not notice it, a low rumble that could just as easily be his imagination. But the rumble grew over time until eventually it became impossible to ignore. What's that? The falls? Radric nodded with a wry grin. Just around the next corner. Brace yourself. Julian snorted. He had seen plenty of waterfalls before. One was much the same as... They rounded the corner and Julian abandoned the thought as his jaw dropped in amazement. The falls were about a quarter of a mile ahead, spilling over the side of a jagged mountain peak that rose high above all the others nearby. The falls had to have measured a thousand feet from the drop-off to the bottom of the gorge, where the river began to flow. Mist billowed off the water as it fell and rose in a great cloud at the falls' base. The rocks on either side of the gorge and on the adjoining flank of the mountain gleamed 
frozen mist reflecting the mid-morning sunlight that shined from the west. Julian instantly understood why they were called Silver Falls. If he didn't know better, he would have thought the ice was precious metal from the way it reflected the sunlight. Gods be good, he said. Or at least, he tried to say it. Even at that distance, the roar from the falls was tremendous. He could barely hear himself speak. We'll need to protect our ears as we get closer. Radric leaned over close to Julian's ear as he spoke. Even still, it was hard to understand him. Julian nodded and flipped open one of his saddlebags. After a moment of digging, he found a small lump of wax. Breaking it in two, he held the two pieces in his fists for a moment to soften them up. Then he pressed them into his ears. The roar was immediately muffled, though it was still distinctly noticeable. The two men continued forward. The great mountain peak rose on their side of the gorge, blocking their path like a colossus. But the road shortly veered away from the gorge and the peak itself, instead climbing the mountain's flank on the other side of the peak from the falls. Julian considered, as they turned on the first of what would probably be many switchbacks designed to lessen the road's angle of ascent, that it was probably for the best. He didn't want to think about how difficult the road would be to follow if it was covered in ice from the mist, so the extra few miles to go around the peak were probably worthwhile. Just before noon, after more switchbacks than Julian wanted to count, they reached the road's highest point and paused for a moment. Looking down from their lofty perch, Julian was struck by the beauty of the valley before them. The road descended across the face of the mountain and made its way back to the river just above the falls, then followed the river to a large lake shaped like a kidney bean that dominated the center of the valley. Lake Glimmermere, if Julian remembered his maps correctly. Still, except for the wakes from a number of boats making way around the lake, the water reflected the mountains on the other side of the valley with near-pristine clarity. Off to the north of the lake, the valley was wooded all the way up into the mountains. To the south, a few copses punctuated the rolling hills, but for the most part there was only grassland except for a narrow spur of mountains that pushed north almost to the shore of the lake. Two rivers flowed into the lake, one from the north and one from the east. A number of what Julian assumed were farming hamlets clustered in the grasslands surrounding the Eastern River. Almost directly opposite the two men on the other side of the valley, Holbart's Pass led away off to the northeast. But the thing that truly drew Julian's eye was the fair-sized town on the north shore of the lake. A sprawling collection of buildings, large and small, surrounding a half-dozen piers that protruded into the lake like the fingers of some great grasping hand. The town of Lyttelton might as well have been the most opulent metropolis in the world. Down there were warm inns, home-cooked meals, and wenches aplenty. He could hardly wait to get there. Glimmervale, Radric said in a soft tone. I've not been here in years. Looks like a nice enough place. Radric nodded. The people are friendly and hospitable, and they have a local recipe for the fish from the lake that is to die for. Then what are we waiting for? Julian spurred his horse to motion and began the descent. Behind him, he heard Radric chuckle before doing the same. Going down was faster than coming up. Before long, they reached the base of the mountain. The road met the river a few hundred yards above the lip of the falls, near a small copse of evergreens. The river was narrow there, maybe a hundred feet across, but flowed swiftly toward the drop-off. Julian was struck by how much quieter it was here than down below. Oh, the falls' roar was still plain to hear, but it was nowhere near as deafening as it had been on the other side. I guess the gorge makes it louder, he murmured to himself earning a curious glance from Radric. Julian shrugged in response and gestured toward the falls. Radric nodded. A good thing, too. Can you imagine trying to live next to all that racket? Julian shuddered. The road ran into the copse about twenty feet from the rocks overhanging the river. It was a pleasant change from the bare rock of the last couple days, and Julian found himself grinning as they passed beneath the tree's canopy. The smell of pine was soothing, reminding him of pleasant days from his past. 
He lost himself in enjoyment for a moment, which made the harsh voice that barked out at them all the more unpleasant. That's far enough. Stop right there. Julian shook himself back to attention and groaned. Half a dozen men stepped out from behind the trees lining the road ahead. They were unshaven, wearing dirty cloaks and leggings that had seen better days. But they also had on what looked like high-quality leather breastplates that were lined with iron studs, leather gauntlets and bracers, and greaves on their shins. Five of them arranged themselves in a loose arc in the road ahead, while the sixth stood a good few feet back and, knocking an arrow to his bowstring, drew back and sighted in on them. Brigands. Julian and Radric reined in their horses, and a burly man with a vicious-looking scar on his chin who stood in the center of the ring of five spoke. From his voice, he was the same man who spoke before. That made him the leader. Your money or your life, boys, he said. Nice welcome. Chapter 2 A Warm Welcome Julian and Radric shared a brief look. This was annoyance they did not need. Julian raised one eyebrow and began inching his hand down toward the pommel of his sword, which hung in its baldric from his saddle horn, a far more comfortable place to keep it while riding than on his hip. Plus, it was easier to draw from there. Radric saw the movement and gave a slight shake of his head. He always wanted to try to talk first. Of course, considering the numbers in this particular encounter, Julian couldn't really blame him much. He pulled his hand back and looked back at the brigands, waiting for Radric to take the lead. We don't have much money, Radric said. A loud snort was the brigand leader's initial reply. <laughs> and you're gonna have a lot less. Hand it over. Radric sighed and looked back at Julian again. With a shrug, he said, All right, hand it over, Julian. Julian wore a small pouch tied to his belt. Moving very slowly, he untied it and held it up for the brigands to see. It was filled to overflowing. The leader's expression changed to one of satisfaction. The fellow to his right, wearing an expression of open greed, stepped forward and reached out for it. Here you are, Julian said and moved to toss it to the fellow. He breathed a curse as he apparently lost his grip earlier than he planned, and, instead of landing in the brigand's hand, the pouch flopped onto the ground near Julian's horse's feet. Sorry about that, he managed with a sheepish grin. The brigand bounded forward and bent over to collect the pouch at the same time as his leader shouted, No, you idiot! The brigand stood back up, Julian's pouch in his hand, and looked back at the leader for a heartbeat. That was the opening Julian was looking for. He kicked with his left foot, catching the brigand square in his face as he was returning his gaze back to Julian. With a crunch of breaking bone, the brigand went down, clutching at his nose and jaw. There was a moment's shocked pause while the other brigands looked wild-eyed at their comrade. Julian drove his heels into his horse's sides, urging him into a run. The gelding bounded forward, but only made it a few feet. A second brigand, more quick to recover than the others, grabbed at the horse's bridle and pulled for all he was worth. The world lurched beneath Julian as the horse stumbled and then began to fall. He cursed again as he launched himself out of the saddle and off to the side. Tucking his shoulder as he hit the ground, Julian rolled to his feet and drew his belt knife. Then he spun around. Radric was still on his feet, laying about with his saber. The brigand Julian had kicked was still down. Another had fallen beneath Radric's blade, and the brigand he faced wore an expression of panic as he parried, then ducked, then leapt backwards away from Radric's relentlessly fluid assault. Julian almost felt sorry for the man, having been on the receiving end of Radric's fencing prowess more than once in the sparring circle. Almost. The archer was nowhere to be seen, though a single arrow was buried deep into a tree trunk not far from where Julian stood. Hopefully Radric had taken him out, or they were in trouble. But Julian didn't have the time to look around for him, as the brigand who grabbed his gelding was charging at him, followed by the scar-faced leader of the brigands. 
Julian adjusted his grip on the knife and settled into a loose, ready stance. He forced down a surge of fear as his fighter's mind calculated the odds of survival for a man who brought a knife to a sword fight. They were not good, in his experience. Then the brigand reached him and, drawing his arm back, attacked with a powerful cut from Julian's left to right. It probably would have spilled his guts, but Julian bounded forward inside the brigand's swing. The brigand's sword arm struck Julian in the ribs, and he wrapped his left arm around it, pinning it in place. At the same time, Julian stabbed upward with his knife. The brigand wore an expression of disbelief as the blade entered his neck, severing his carotid artery and trachea. Julian withdrew the knife, and the brigand fell to the ground, spasming out the last of his life. Ten feet away, Scarface came up short, his expression suddenly a mix of wariness and eager anticipation. Behind him, Raedrick was nowhere to be seen, though Julian heard the noise of more fighting somewhere off to the left. The leader of the brigand smiled, his grin causing the puckered scar on his chin to expand. For a second, Julian thought sure it was going to swallow the other man's face whole, it grew so large. This could be fun, Scarface said. Pick up the sword. His voice was steady and calm despite the grin of excitement on his face. He gestured with his sword point towards his comrade's weapon, now lying at Julian's feet. What was this? Either Scarface was very confident or very stupid. Or maybe both. But Julian wasn't about to question the sudden generosity. Slowly, he lowered into a crouch and, replacing his knife into its sheath, he took hold of the sword. Scarface came on in a rush, his weapon singing through the air as it descended toward Julian's neck. Desperately parrying upward, Julian flung himself away from the assault. The clang of steel striking steel was still in the air as he completed a full backward roll and rose to his feet, just in time to meet a second attack from the brigand leader. Another quick retreat left the cut to whistle harmlessly through the air. Julian tried to counterattack, but Scarface's assault was relentless and he found himself driven backward again. And again. The man was good. Parry, dodge, retreat. Julian gave up more ground and found himself leaving the cops and treading on the bare rock near the riverbank. Bending his knees to avoid a high cut, he attempted a riposte. Somehow Scarface's high cut became a descending parry that knocked the thrust aside. Then Julian found the wind driven from his lungs as the brigand leader spun around and drove the heel on his boot into Julian's lower ribs. He tumbled to the ground, unable to breathe and awash with pain from his ribs. He felt as much as heard Scarface's blade descending toward him and forced himself to roll over and raise his own sword. Steel met steel again as the force of the cut's momentum drove the two hilts together in the air above Julian's body. For a moment, the two men looked at each other through the frame of their entwined blades. Finally able to draw a breath, Julian saw that Scarface had barely broken a sweat and was breathing normally. He smirked, a mocking twist of the lips that carried no small amount of disdain, and leaned in, driving the two blades slowly downward despite Julian pushing upwards with all his strength. Ready to die? he asked. Julian knew he wasn't going to be able to keep the sword from falling for much longer. Already his arms were shaking from the strain of resisting. Julian abruptly stopped fighting it and rolled with the force of Scarface's push, driving the swords to the ground beside himself. At the same time, he kicked upward into the side, catching Scarface on his hip. Now it was the brigand leader's turn to tumble to the ground. In the brief respite, Julian bounded to his feet and backed away, gingerly feeling at his ribs with his left hand. The brigand leader flipped to his feet easily and assumed a ready stance, his blade held loosely in both hands with the tip pointing at Julian's eyes. He inclined his head in salute for a moment, the mocking smirk gone from his face. Then he attacked again, and again Julian was driven back. He gave ground with each exchange, and only avoided severe injury on one occasion because of the male shirt he wore. All the same, he accumulated several small cuts where his parry or dodge wasn't quite fast enough. 
Scarface remained untouched. The roar of the falls was louder now. Between parries, Julian glanced over his shoulder and was shocked to see that he had retreated almost all the way to the edge of the river, only twenty yards or so from the drop-off. The glance cost him. Julian barely hopped back from another attack, but still took a deep cut in his thigh. He was running out of time and space, and now his balance was off as his thigh protested every movement. Julian attempted another counter, a rising cut toward the brigand leader's armpit. He found his eyes growing wide with surprise as Scarface executed a highly stylized, spiraling parry that ended with the tip of his sword hooking beneath Julian's hilt. A flick of Scarface's wrists pulled the sword from Julian's hand and left him with a deep cut in the meat of his thumb. The sword clattered away somewhere off to the right. Stunned, Julian took a half-step back and raised his hand. This couldn't be happening. The brigand leader sneered and snapped off a quick salute with his sword. Well fought, he said before he began to move forward. Frantic, Julian retreated again. Wait. Raedric? Where was Raedric? Julian looked back towards the cops, but there was still no sign of his friend. Scarface swung at him, and Julian leaned far backwards to avoid a cut that would have taken his head off. All the same, he felt the tip of the sword cut a line across the bridge of his nose. He stumbled back and suddenly found he had nowhere else to go as his heels reached the edge of the rocks overhanging the river. Pinwheeling his arms for a moment to regain his balance, Julian glanced down at the swirling, frigid water as it rushed to the lip of the falls. This was it. He never once imagined it would end this way. He looked up again just as Scarface attacked with a backhanded swing that was again headed for his head. In desperation, Julian moved forward and raised his right arm. Scarface's wrist struck the bones of his forearm. Julian cupped his hand over the brigand leader's wrist and drove his palms upward toward the back of his elbow. The sharp crack of breaking bone preceded Scarface's scream of surprise and pain by a heartbeat. His hand spasmed open, dropping the sword at Julian's feet, and his eyes went wide with shock, then wider still with dread as Julian pivoted about his rear foot and, using the arm as a lever, hurled the brigand leader over the edge of the rocks. His arms and legs flailed at the empty air for a second, then the brigand leader splashed into the river. He bobbed to the surface quickly, but just as quickly began to sink again. Heavy boots and armor make swimming difficult, Julian thought with a certain satisfaction. He watched as Scarface splashed with his one good arm, trying with all his might to avoid being pulled under. Help me! Scarface cried, to whom Julian couldn't guess, since he certainly had no intention of lending a hand. The current swept the hapless man toward the drop-off. His swimming attempts became more frantic as he looked with horror toward the approaching edge. Help! Please! He screamed. Then he reached the edge and dropped out of sight. His last long scream of despair carried over the fall's roar for a moment, but was quickly overwhelmed. Well fought, Julian said. Okay, there you have it, chapter one and two. A little skirmish to start the visit to the Vale off. Nice welcome, right? I uh, hope you liked it. If you did, swing by my website. You can go to ssnstorytelling.com where you can get ebook or print or audiobook, all of which get maximum profit margin to me by going to me. Of course, you can also find the audiobook on Audible and iTunes and Kobo and Google Play and audiobooks.com and pretty much any place you can find an audiobook at these places, you'll find it. And uh, the ebook and print books are everywhere too. Uh, so check that out. Of course, uh, please uh, spread the word to all your friends. Give us uh, good ratings on the various podcasts and YouTube platforms. And uh, we'll come back again next week 
thanks for tuning in, such as it is. I'll talk to you next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual retailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Finally, if you really like what I'm doing and want to support on a more regular basis, you can come to my Patreon and become a patron. Just a couple bucks a month will help out a lot. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>